The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. You may be seated. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 21. Yes, there is another chapter in John's Gospel. It's understandable that this may be confusing because John 20 seems to wrap everything up just perfectly, doesn't it? Uh, John gives us a concluding purpose statement. There's, there's this climax in the story with Thomas and then the purpose statement and we think, done. Um, so what's the point of chapter 21? Critics debate this, but simply... It's not at all unusual for John to write an epilogue. This is an epilogue. Chapter 1, the prologue tells us who Jesus really is. Think of, in the beginning was the Word, so he's speaking of the deity of Christ. um, Fitting with this purpose statement at the end of rightly believing in him. Not just believing something in general, but rightly believing in Jesus So that you might have everlasting life. The prologue tells us we're not simply believing in a good teacher. Or some moral example who cannot save. No, saving belief understands he's not simply a part of creation. He's the creator. He is God. The climax of this story of faith, of believing in the reality of Jesus as both Lord and God, it's seen in this wonderful declaration of Thomas at the end of chapter 20. This is the the conclusion to the body of John's gospel. But then he gives us an epilogue. An epilogue, which is, it's a scene. Think of it like a scene that takes place after the climax of the story. It wraps up some of the story's events. It doesn't resolve the main theme of the story, but it does give resolution to questions, to curiosities about some of the characters and their future. For example, we might wonder about Peter. Yes, Jesus revealed himself to him. But what about their relationship after Peter's terrible denial? How did Jesus feel about him? Was Peter paralyzed with guilt? What happens to him and some of the others? If this were, okay, if this were a movie, the main theme is to show who Jesus really is. We get to the end. There's There's the conflict and tension of the cross, the triumph of the resurrection, and his disciples rightly see him and believe, but then a twist, like there always is, a twist. Thomas wasn't there. Thomas grows cynical and angry. He's an unbeliever. But Jesus comes to the rescue and overcomes his unbelief. The the music builds and Thomas, with tears running down his face, drops to his knees and declares, My Lord and my God. The biggest, greatest statement of all that wraps it up so perfectly. The screen goes black and we read, Now Jesus did many other other signs in the presence of the disciples. 
But these are shown so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The end. The music starts back up. The credits begin to roll. But you still want more. You know it's the end of the story, but you still have some questions. You wonder about the future of these men. You, okay, have you ever sat in a theater after the movie's over, wondering, hoping, you know, you don't get up and leave right away, you're hoping that they'll give you a little more, hoping for one of those mid-credit scenes, and how perfect to show Peter and these disciples back in Galilee, where Jesus preached and healed people and did great miracles, where where they were with him. And all of their memories of those three years of ministry in Galilee. And once again, here they are. They're out in a boat doing what they do. Fishing. It's the perfect scene for an epilogue. There are a few loose ends about these characters, their relationships, their futures. But we're going to hit pause, and we're going to pray first. So let's pray together. Our gracious Savior and friend, there's nothing better in this life than knowing you, than seeing your glory, and the beautiful ways in which you love us and provide for us. Though we fail you, you continue to love and forgive and cause us to persevere until the end. In our own strength and efforts, the nets are empty. And by your sovereign work, they're full, as is our joy. Lord, help us to see you as you have revealed yourself in your word, that that we too might be fed and strengthened for the work you have for us to do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. John 21, we're going to read verses 1 through 14. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, And two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. 
for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in, in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is God's word. You may be seated. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. The first two times he said, peace be with you. Reassuring them that he was alive, that he accomplished salvation, that as the Father sent him, so now he was sending his disciples. He was creating something new as he breathed on them, illustrating that he is the source of life and the promised Holy Spirit would indwell them, empowering them to proclaim forgiveness of sins through the preaching of God's word. And then Jesus brings about belief in Thomas, enabling him to see that he is our blessing as both Lord and God. All of his claims were true, and believing in him means eternal life, the end. But there's another scene. We read in verse 1, after this, Jesus revealed himself again. And the scene begins with these Galilean disciples returning home and on the lake. A scene so reminiscent of their past and yet illustrating their future. As Jesus, remember Jesus told these fishermen, I will make you fishers of men. This is the epilogue of what it means to be evangelists. To go into the world, to make disciples of Jesus, to be fishers of men. Before the crucifixion, Jesus told his disciples that that after I'm raised up, I will go before you in Galilee. So they knew to go to Galilee. When he was raised, once again, Jesus and an angel sent message to the disciples, go to Galilee, where he will appear to them. It was on a hill in Galilee that Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. In various Galilean towns, he performed many miracles. On the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he healed the demon-possessed man. Remember, sending the demons into into a bunch of swine that went into the sea. On the other shore, he fed the 5,000. It was on these waters that Jesus called Peter, James, and John to to leave behind their fishing nets and become fishers of men. So it's the perfect place filled with all of these memories to teach them something else before he finally leaves, before he finally ascends 
to heaven. Jesus is intentional in meeting them once again in Galilee. It's like living away from home for years and then you return and it just looks the same. And your mind is is remembering and you see something you experienced in the past and the connection is made. Jesus is doing this with them. Jesus knew where where they'd be. Galilee, now Galilee is a region, but he knew that eventually they must go fishing. He knew they'd be out on the lake fishing. He knew probably the spot, likely the very location where he first called them. So some speculate that the disciples, that this is bad news, that the disciples are abandoning their calling and returning to their previous occupation. But the reality is they're in Galilee because Jesus told them to go there. And after some waiting, it seems pretty natural for these men to wait on the water, to go fishing, to get something to eat. So I don't agree with that. They're waiting for Jesus. They're obedient to Jesus. They're just fishing. In reality, when, when we look at this, we should see a great encouragement. Initially, what did they do? Initially, at the cross... With, with all of the turmoil going on, they, they scattered, they hid. They did um, fulfill the ancient prophecy that said, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. They scattered, they hid, but now, now they've recollected. Now they've gathered in open allegiance to Jesus in a place where he did most of his public works in an area where people would recognize them as Jesus' disciples, they're not, hiding. they're not hiding anymore. They're actually courageously gathering as his church. So it's an encouragement to see them gather. And it's an encouragement to realize the kinds of people Jesus calls to form his church. Look at, look at who these men are. They're not a bunch of capable superheroes. No, the church began with and continues to be a gathering of people who are weak and have failed. Paul says that God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And this collection includes Peter. Peter, who denied the Lord. And Thomas who had a stubborn disbelief. And Nathaniel, who we really don't know anything about. There's not much said about him. And then some others that aren't even named here. A bunch of nobodies. A bunch of, I don't know, humanly speaking, losers. Like us. Um, These are the kinds of people who do Christian work. And when I say Christian work, I don't mean pastors. I mean you. The work that you do is ministry. We equip for ministry at church. We worship the Lord and then we go out into the world and we do Christian work, Christian ministry. That's who these people are. They've failed. They're normal people. That's who we are. 
We're sinners gathered together, forgiven and cleansed by the atoning death of Jesus, given faith in the resurrected Lord who renews us and then sends us and equips us to do his work. So it's really, really encouraging to see these disciples obeying Jesus by going to Galilee and no longer scattered, no longer hiding. This is evidence of what Jesus taught back in John 6, saying, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and then this last part, I will raise him up on the last day. There's, there's an assurance there. He will cause us to to persevere until the end. So this epilogue, we see evidence of God sustaining them, His sustaining grace, His mercy that causes them to persevere. Okay, what happens to these characters? They're not lost. They're not scattered. They're coming around, obeying. It's evidence of a new era. And the same is true for us. If we are called to saving faith, then Jesus will make sure that we persevere to the very end. Their story is evidence that speaks to our gospel story. So, think of it. Do do you think Jesus was just waiting for them to go fishing? Wanting to teach them by using this this memory, it's the perfect opportunity to to make his original point of making them fishers of men. It was like he's waiting for, he knew that they're going to go out fishing. Now's the time. It does illustrate many things. John, he gives a lot of details that that make us wonder if, if he's just giving us details or if there's something to it. For example, it's not at all, you know, you read a lot of commentaries and they'll say, there's nothing to it being at night. Fishermen fish at night. Fish can't see the nets. He's just giving us a detail. Well, and I know that's true. When I went fishing on the lake with my grandpa, the worst time to catch fish was always in the afternoon. The best was getting up super early in the morning when it's dark outside that's when you'd catch the fish. Or maybe in the evening, but never in the middle of the day when it's lake fishing. So John might simply be stating a fact here. But then again, John sure likes to play with words, doesn't he? And a common theme that he uses is light and darkness. Being in the dark means that you're, you're blind to the truth. And then Jesus brings about light. He brings about understanding. And this is definitely the case in this story. So that might be there with John. It might be intentional in this sense. They're fishing in the dark. And all night long they haven't caught a single fish. But Jesus comes on the scene, directs them to a gigantic catch. And at this point they see who it is. They're not in the dark anymore. Jesus is giving them some lessons for their future service to him. So I want to consider four lessons from this text. First, first we see the futility of doing Christian service apart from Christ. Now, again, 
These men are just fishing. There's nothing wrong with this. But Jesus waited for them to go fishing before appearing to them. And he did so because he's the master teacher. He's using this to illustrate a point that relates to a different kind of fishing, one that, one that they'd remember, that they'd now know. So if we labor according to our own wisdom or skill and power, if we forget the necessity of prayer, for example, and a, and a faithfulness to the gospel message, and make it about marketing or programs or technology, then we may be fishing all night in the dark and get skunked. And I'm not saying we shouldn't use modern tools for the sake of the gospel. But we can never think that these are primary. They are not primary. A new kind of boat is okay. But if we're not reliant upon Jesus, who alone draws people to himself, then we're doomed to failure. Quoting Bruce Milne, Richard Phillips points out that the church in the Western world has never had such an array of helps, resources, and methodologies as at present. As at present. Many of them provided by psychology and sociological theories and dependent on technological gadgetry. Yet the spiritual harvest of the churches in the West pales compared to churches in the global South and in Asia. These churches, lacking our material resources and knowing nothing of contemporary success success methodologies, produce a harvest of souls that far outstrips anything known in the West. In the realm of spiritual work, For Christ's kingdom, we need to remember that Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. These men were professional fishermen. They knew what they were doing. But Jesus is showing them that apart from him, their work, their wisdom, their expertise means nothing. People in poverty and weakness rely on prayer and the power of God and the simple direct sharing of the gospel while we tend to work through the night in our own strength and find empty nets. A second lesson being taught is that those who obey the word of Christ will enjoy his power and provision. In this illustration, his words, pay attention to the words of Jesus. They reveal some things. First, what does he say to them? He says, children, do you have any fish? No. Cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. I think this is kind of, I don't know if this is supposed to be funny or not. I kind of read it as funny, but maybe, maybe not. Do you read this and wonder, is there a little fishing humor going on here? Um, you know, when my grandpa would take us fishing at Diamond Lake, and we'd use the, the cleaning room, cleaning all the fish, I'd often hear people, you know, kind of, they'd look over and they'd, they'd say to them, where'd you catch those fish? And he would chuckle and say, in the mouth. <laughs> uh, 
So did they have the nets on the left or port side? And was Jesus saying, try the starboard side? Or was he saying, you're doing it all wrong, try the right side? What's amazing to me is that they did what he said. They, did what, they didn't know it was Jesus, remember? They didn't recognize him yet. So they've been fishing all night, likely exhausted, likely frustrated, because they weren't catching a single thing all night long. And some guy tells these professional fishermen what to do, and they do it. That's amazing. And the memories are there, right? Jesus did this before. And Peter was frustrated that some teacher would tell him, a professional fisherman, how to fish. But he did it anyway. And just like before, there's a miraculous catch with the nets full of fish. Jesus, using these powerful memories, is teaching them that there's power and provision when you do what he says. A.W. Pink relates this lesson to Christian ministry saying, he tells the servants that success in their ministry is due not to their eloquence, their power of persuasion, or their anything, but due alone to his sovereign drawing power. Our Lord's object was to show the disciples that the secret of success was to work at his command and to act with implicit obedience To his word. Look at the words of Jesus here. Beginning with verse 5. He says to them. Children do you have any fish? I don't think there's much to be. You know children stands out to us. But it's like a British person saying lads. Or guys. Do you have any fish? Have you caught any fish? And. Jesus, of course, he knows everything. He knows they haven't caught any fish. He's asking them for a a purpose. He knows, but he wants, you know, I don't think he's rubbing it in. He knows. He just, he wants them to respond. He's not trying to shame them. It's meant to get a response, to have them vocalize, to admit, to realize that they're powerless. Likewise, we have to admit the reality of our own inability. Jesus asks, how's it going? In the dark, on your own, are you having any success? And it's important for us to admit the truth of our inability. Look at verse 6. Now he, he gives a, a bit of instruction. Instruction that probably seems silly to them. They've been all over the lake, they've tried everything, and now some guy from the shore says, cast the nets on the right side of the boat. Okay, could it be that simple? Likewise, is this how we feel about prayer? Could it be that simple? I've been trying and trying and trying, and you tell me to stop and pray? But Jesus doesn't only say, cast over on the right side. He also says, and you will find some. They needed to admit their inability. They needed to do what Jesus said. 
And they needed to recognize that it really wasn't a matter of where, but who. Who's in control? He promises that if they do what he says, they will find some fish. It's not location. It's Jesus and doing what he says. But I also love how this story continues. They, they realize it's him. They come to shore with a massive catch because they obeyed him. We see that without Jesus, there would be no fish. And yet, Jesus says in verse 10, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So a third lesson is that our work done in obedience leads to Christ's reward. The work done for him, done in obedience to him, is not worthless. Some Christians get confused over works and rewards. When you hear works, I bet a lot of you think filthy rags. Some Christians, they just lump it all together. They define works as filthy rags. And yes, works done with the thought of cleaning myself up, making myself righteous in God's sight. Yes, those kinds of works are like filthy rags. But this doesn't mean that our works done in obedience to Christ are worthless in God's sight. No, I, you know, I remember R.C. Sproul taking on this subject and saying, don't call the works, which are the fruit of God's spirit, filthy. Those, are, those works are beautiful. They're the fruit of God's spirit in you. Works that try to earn God's mercy and forgiveness are worthless. But works done in obedience to Christ for his glory are a great reward, a blessing of God. Okay, now we get this reward part. Jesus caught the fish. They couldn't have done it without his sovereign power over nature. And yet, he graciously says, bring some of the fish you caught. Again, I think of fishing with my grandpa when I was too little to do it. It was his extra pole. It was, it was my grandpa who tied the weight and the leader and the hook he did the baiting. He did the, he did the casting. Got it all in place. He even saw the pole dip and set the hook, handed me the pole, and I reel it in. And we get to the cleaning room, and he brags and chuckles at the fish that I caught. I only reeled it in. He's the one who really caught it. But it was called mine. It was my blessing. It was counted as my work. This is the reality of all our Christian service. Of any evangelism that leads to someone coming to faith in Christ. Apart from him, it wouldn't have happened. But he takes us fishing and gives us the joy of doing his work. And he even calls it ours. What you do in this life actually matters. People get confused over rewards, saying the only real reward that, I, that matters, the only real reward that counts is being with Jesus in heaven. And I get that. 
Who cares about anything else? This is by far the only reward that ultimately matters. But God's word talks about rewards. It tells us that he rewards those who seek him. God loves, he loves to give rewards to his children. He loves to bless us. Just like you parents or grandparents, you love to do that kind of stuff with your kids or grandkids. It blesses you. It's your joy. So you can sense the heart of Jesus in saying, wow, look at, look at what you caught. <laughs> Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 tells us that if the work that anyone has built on the foundation, which is Christ, if the, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer a loss, though he himself will be saved. That's the, I got Jesus in heaven part. But there are some rewards, right? If our works are not built on Christ, they will not last. You may be in heaven. You don't earn your way there. Jesus is your reward. You're not going to be sad. We may be saved because salvation is not by works, but apparently there are some works that lead to a reward. Works built on the foundation of Christ. Works not done in our own strength. Works done in faith, in obedience to Jesus. They matter. They matter. They will be a lasting joy. You couldn't have caught it without Him. It's His work, but this is a part of His grace, isn't it? He involves you. It's His joy to call it your trophy. And finally, a fourth lesson we see is the importance of our personal fellowship with Christ. When their nets were filled with fish, John, the light comes, John immediately says, It's the Lord! Making this connection. He knew it was the Lord because, hey, this happened before. Whoa! That must be Jesus. That's the Lord. He recognizes what could only be attributed to him. And he's overjoyed to see him. And the same needs to be true in our successes. When something wonderful happens, we need to give the praise, give him the praise that is due to him and say, it's the Lord. This story also gives us a contrast. A contrast in Peter's reaction to Jesus. Again, the same, this happened, this is a deja vu moment. It's a con, we see a contrast though in Peter's reaction. A contrast that speaks of fellowship. A contrast that speaks of how the gospel has changed everything in Peter's relationship with Jesus. Think of the first time Jesus brought in a large catch of fish. The first time when Jesus had called his disciples, he he, he was preaching along the same shore. The crowds got too big, and so he climbs into Peter's boat and says, Take me out in the water. And he preaches from there. And when he was done, he says to Peter, Let's go out a little further and drop your nets there. Peter reluctantly obeyed, and the catch was so large that they had to have a second boat come and help, and the nets couldn't hold the fish. So... 
When this happens, Peter's thinking of that. But do you remember the first time? Do you remember what Peter's reaction was? It seems like an unusual reaction. You'd think that he'd want to sign Jesus up to a little contract for some future fishing trips, make a ton of money. But how does Peter react the first time? His reaction is the common reaction of sinful man in the presence of God's holiness. Sinful man tends to react by either fleeing or asking God to go away. It's like Adam and Eve, their reaction in the garden. When they became, they became, they knew God was holy, but when they became aware of their sinfulness, they hid. They hid from his holy presence. Holiness exposes sin. Light shining in dark places exposes shameful things. And people want to scurry back into the darkness and hide from the light. So this is the reaction of sinful people and the holiness of God. And when Peter first was confronted with the deity of Christ, he realized he was in the presence of holiness and said, Depart from me. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Peter confesses his sin, his unworthiness to be Christ's presence. He's really uncomfortable. But what do we see this time? Through another miraculous catch of fish, Jesus reveals his holiness, his deity. But this time, Peter can't wait to see him. Throws some clothes on, jumps into the sea. He can't get to Jesus fast enough. Why? What's the difference? Is Peter, is he less of a sinner? No, in fact, he's even more sinful. He just denied his Lord three times. What's changed is Peter's understanding, his embrace of the gospel. He knows that Jesus died for him. He knows that Jesus died for him to forgive him and to cleanse him. He knows that by God's grace, through faith, In his risen Lord, he is accepted. He is invited into the fellowship of his Lord who is holy. That hasn't changed. God is still holy. Man is still, practically speaking, sinful. But what's changed is the relationship. Because of Jesus, the sin has been dealt with. And so the relationship is new. It's restored. Peter knows the peace of God. Instead of a rebuke, he's received a blessing of mercy and love. And this this fellowship that we enjoy is also seen in how Jesus... You know, think of him washing his disciples' feet. He, he, he served them. And what's he doing? You know, he, he went to the cross. He's resurrected now. He's glorified And he's still serving them. They come to the shore. And what do you see? You see a fire and some fish and bread. And they must have had another deja vu moment. 
when Jesus miraculously fed the 5,000. They must have realized that he is their Lord and their God, that he provides for their every need, not only their spiritual need, but their physical need as well. What a gracious Lord we have. What a, what a love. Do you know this? Do you realize the, the fellowship that we have with Jesus? That he says to his own peace be with you? That he invites all who trust in him to be near to him? To dine with him like we just did? He cares for your every need. In Christ, there is, a, there is a supernatural abundance of provision and a compassionate heart that meets our needs. Paul tells us, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So, see the futility of serving serving in your own strength. Obey Christ's command. Work with a knowledge that He loves to reward us. And run, swim, whatever, whatever it takes to be in His presence. Enjoying His fellowship, His abundant provision for you. Let's pray together. Lord God, we are, we are so blessed to be called by you. To know you. To have life in you. To be sent and used by you for the sake of your glory. Showing your, your goodness and love to a lost and dying world. Lord, help us to know your love and your care for us. To know your peace. The wonderful fellowship in relying upon your sovereign care and provision. To know that apart from you, we can do nothing. Help us to see your power. Help us to see your strength. To have confidence in your word and to obey it. Thank you for so graciously giving purpose and joy to our work that you love to reward us may we glorify you in it and be blessed in jesus name we pray amen